2: Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. It's-a me,
0: Coronio. <laughs> no, that's not true. Wouldn't it be cute if there was like a little mascot <laughs> for coronavirus? I don't know why he's Italian. No, no, this is Dr. Santosh. I'm your peds infectious disease doc and researcher.
2: Yellow, it is me, Corona. Again? <laughs> Stay
0: thirsty, my
2: friends. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> the most contagious man in the world. <laughs> what, uh, on the day we record this, day 53 of quarantine?
0: Yeah, I don't want to say the word quarantine, but yeah, um, stay at home recommendations, which by the way, does not apply to you or me.
2: <laughs> well, it doesn't apply to us going to the hospital. It's not like I've got a hot date waiting for me when I get back. <laughs>
0: No, you had a hot steak.
2: I did have a hot steak. Happy birthday (laughs) to me. Once again, as I'm sure you've guessed from our lighthearted tone, it's an alternate week. And that means it's time for everybody's favorite, Journal Club. Yay!
0: Yeah!
2: And I didn't want to throw in the boo, so this time our corona stories are tinted with a little ray of sunshine And we're going to start off with some fun ones and then do a couple not-so-fun. And then end with some fun ones again. (laughs)
0: The good, bad, good. Yeah, I think you called it a shit sandwich. I haven't heard that in a while.
2: Well, let's start with protective gear. Uh, We are slowly replenishing around the nation are personal protective equipment lots of places are still short but the big debate now is people who do want to wear a mask don't want to wear a mask and without setting too much of my feet in what i'm sure is going to turn into another political issue let me say (laughs) for those of you who feel that face masks are restrictive for everyday life You're not wrong. They can be uncomfortable to wear. So let's talk about an alternative option, the face shield. The transmission mechanisms of respiratory viruses are pretty well established and and we can let Santosh go into those but the evidence regarding the effectiveness of the various protective face gear really hasn't been studied until now so we know that cloth masks can offer some degree of protection we know that the N95 golden masks can offer filtering in both directions but what about face shields is that a better alternative for people than The restrictive bandito masks? So
0: the restrictive bandito masks, they're really good for healthcare providers because especially the N95s provide protection for uh, particulate matter or droplets coming in. And they also, if for whatever reason, the person who's wearing uh, the mask is also sick, um, especially if they're asymptomatic and they don't know it, then if they cough, sneeze, talk, then it stops the stuff from coming out and going out. But for people who are kind of out on the street and they're wandering around and you still want to protect yourself like that, I do want to let you know that what you're doing with the mask or the shield is you're stopping you the the mask wearer from infecting other people in case you're asymptomatically carrying a respiratory virus around in that case um it doesn't really matter if like the top and the bottom is like open you just want it so that if you're talking like this you're spitting while you talk then the droplets either hit the face shield or you know, kind of harmlessly fall to the ground instead of floating off into the air.
2: And I will tell you one of the more horrifying moments that happens to me now on at least a weekly basis is when I have to sneeze while wearing a face mask, because I know it's all coming right back at me and there's (laughs) nothing I can do about it.
0: Yeah, and it it feels weird and it starts to stink after a while, which is, you know, you you have to exchange them and that kind of thing. If they get a little too moist for one reason or another, you have to dry it out before you can use it again, because otherwise the, the permeability is compromised or increased in this case. so
2: So let's talk about face shields now they have several advantages over face masks for starters they don't need to be built from any kind of special material it's transparent plastic you can buy them you know 600 to a ream at office supply stores
0: (laughs) (laughs) to a ream what
2: the hell i don't know what the form of giant you know plastic sheets is but they're at office supplies so as a result production and fabric and fabrication lines can be repurposed pretty rapidly to, re- to produce face shields. In addition, they can be reused. Surgical face masks really aren't meant to be. And although some techniques have now been proposed to clean the respirator masks, that's only realistic in a hospital setting. Similarly, if you're wearing a cloth bandito mask, Uh, Every time you come home, that should be washed immediately after being used. And after a certain number of washes, it's going to get threadbare and lose some efficiency. Face shields are more comfortable than masks. They sit around your forehead rather than on your ears. They can be worn for hours on end without restricting your breathing. And the plastic is easily cleaned with soap and water or household disinfectants. But do they reduce the amount of inhalation exposure? Well, Face shields have already been studied for this when they were looking at another similar droplet-spread respiratory virus, influenza. And in this case, it is like corona. Face shields reduce immediate viral exposure by 96% when worn by a simulated healthcare worker within 18 inches of a cough. So if a face shield can block you from 18 inches away of 96% of infections and you're six feet away, imagine how much better it could be doing.
0: (laughs) That's true. If you're not in healthcare, I like it as an option of, uh, you know, just, you know, keeping a face shield up. Reminders, as always, uh, it's not a substitute for actual distancing. It's not a substitute for a staying home. It is really an extra piece of protection if you want to protect others from potentially getting sick from you and you're passing close by each other, especially, you know, if things get crowded in something like a grocery store um, or things like that.
2: Now, the shields, when put together correctly, and you can find guidelines for how to do this on YouTube, you can 3D print them. The protective effect exceeds 80%, and they block about 68% of small particle aerosols, which are not thought to be a dominant mode of transmission. So go out, wear your face shields or your face masks as we all try and brace ourselves for the oncoming storm. But back to our ray of sunshine. In addition to face shields... I have a delightful little story about another method that some researchers are using to start screening various people who are around. And it involves, well, a very well trained nose.
0: (laughs) Sometimes the nose knows. This is not a new thing, by the way, for COVID 19, but I, this is one of my favorite, what do you call it? Like, uh, it's a technology, I guess. Uh, my one of my very very favorite medical technologies. Dogs. Uh, Well, no, no, no. The the use of dogs for sniffing out illness.
2: My favorite medical technology is also dogs. (laughs) And. As such,
0: (laughs) just two intelligent people. What do you do? I'm a doctor. Oh, what's your favorite part of being a doctor? Dogs. Uh, What?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess if you're a vet, but (laughs) disease sniffing dogs Mm -hmm. are being recruited into the fight against coronavirus. So the University of Pennsylvania's School of Veterinary Medicine is training eight Labradors to recognize the scent of the virus and identify it in patients. So before they can supplement, you know, traditional COVID testing, which we still lack, the dogs first have to undergo odor imprinting in a laboratory setting. So they're currently spending three weeks smelling saliva and urine samples from people who have tested positive for COVID-19. Aww. (laughs) I mean, that sounds like a great week for a dog. (laughs) Boy, oh boy, oh boy, I'm going to sniff everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I guess, (laughs) I mean, if they're cool with it, I mean- (laughs) <laughs> because yeah it, it's kind of attractive and fun to you know for a doggie to just get a bunch of new smells that they wouldn't normally get to smell but yeah
2: so first they get to smell all up in the business of people who have positive covid tests mm-hmm. then when they've been exposed the dogs have to distinguish between covid positive and covid negative samples mm-hmm. uh which will put them probably at roughly the sensitivity of our existing corona tests. Mm -hmm. Then they also need to detect the virus in live patients, even those who are asymptomatic carriers. Now, as you mentioned, Santosh, dogs have been previously trained to sniff out malaria, bed bugs, bombs, and even stolen art. So the current researchers aren't sure if the dogs can learn to identify the actual virus, but it's not as crazy as it sounds.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. They have such a, not just that they can smell good, (laughs) but they have the ability to distinguish smells to a much finer degree than we can. And that really is what helps us out, that they can make these distinctions, not just that they can smell things from far away or through another complex amalgam of smells.
2: At only eight participants, it's not a super extensive study at this point. But if we are going to proceed with opening up the general world again, having dogs who can walk through an airport or a public area and be trained to sniff out people who may be sick could be very helpful for all of us walking around wearing face shields and masks and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's our brief ray of sunshine. Let's now bring in the filling of our sandwich and mm-hmm. we'll do two quick stories. One is, hey, did you think that one outbreak was enough? Well, Too bad, because guess what's making a comeback?
0: (laughs) Don't call it a comeback. It was never gone.
2: It's polio, and it was gone for a while. But now with vaccinations suspended, Africa, uh, specifically from this story, Niger, but about 14 different African countries are experiencing outbreaks of polio all across because they are not able to get the vaccination as who has suspended all the vaccination campaigns. Whoa, come on. Seriously? This one started with about three children in Niger, and the polio virus will continue to circulate and paralyze more children as no high-quality campaigns can be conducted in a timely manner, said the president or the coordinator of polio eradication for Africa. Uh, Yeah, Back in December, they had ended a polio outbreak that had lasted two years. But And here's the thing. I know we don't have people who buy into conspiracy theories listening to our show. But here's what you're going to hear, because it's true. Polio, by and large, has been eradicated. But on occasion, the live virus in a polio vaccine can evolve back into a form capable of starting new outbreaks among children that haven't been vaccinated. And that's what is happening here. When the WHO halted all polio vaccination activities until June to prevent giving people coronavirus with mass gatherings, they accepted that there may be a resurgence of polio and other vaccine preventable diseases. So while Corona's out to play, all the other viruses are like, hey, nobody's paying attention to us. Let's run amok. Amok, amok, amok.
0: If we decide to turn this into, you know, an anti vaccine craziness, then yeah, we're going to drown in this pretty badly. And we certainly just do not want this to happen. Let's start with polio specifically, because I think this is really important. When you vaccinate for polio in a place that has never seen the polio vaccine or where polio is endemic, meaning it's just part and parcel of the local flora there. And kids are just vulnerable to it all the time and and adults and, you know, like it was back in the 1960s here. Right. Um, So... When you're stuck in that mode, the first vaccine you use is the oral live vaccine. And you want to do that for two reasons. One, you actually shed the vaccine and you create a larger herd immunity because that vaccine strain, which is hugely benign, by the way. And I, I've got to emphasize this, Josh, that like the, the risk for... Getting polio from the polio virus, the live polio virus, by the way, not the injectable polio virus vaccine that we have in the United States, but the oral polio virus, the chances are one per millions. Okay. It's very, very odd that it reverts. And that versus, you know, true poliomyelitis, which is much, much, much higher in terms of its risk if you catch it of getting, you know, a a dead leg or a dead arm, you know, paralysis. So you start with oral polio vaccine, you shed the virus into the environment. Um, There are people of all ages who are actually, you know, it's it's going to be in the water supply. So they're actually going to get vaccinated by proxy. Okay. But the other thing that you really want to do is you want to replace the replicating normal wild type polio virus, which is much more virulent with the vaccine uh, strain, so to speak. So If that happens, then all of a sudden you have a benign strain of poliovirus that's, you know, going through uh, drinking water and it's much, much safer as... You get better and better coverage and you see bol- polio go away. You replace an oral polio uh, campaign with the injectable one for subsequent generations so that you no longer pose that risk of reversion, but you still protect those patients who never got the oral polio you know, so this is the way it works. This is not a quick, easy, dirty fix. It takes time. Um, but the reason why surveillance like this one in these areas where we saw reversion. We have these patients and these areas from the point of the WHO and local health authorities under constant, constant, constant surveillance. And that's why we find these reversions so quickly and then we have to pause. and If we pause and hold properly and then we go back to vaccinating our patients, you know, just let's find out what went wrong, let's fix the problem and then continue the vaccine campaign, we're gonna be okay. If we decide to go backwards and say, oh, it's a conspiracy and all this other nonsense and we're going to just absolutely stop, then polio is going to make a massive comeback.
2: Moving on to our next one. So, yeah, polio is is showing up again all over Africa because you can't in you can't safely do a mass vaccination campaign without bringing masses together. Not a great idea during a pandemic. So. It's a trade-off that is not wonderful, but hopefully we'll be able to resume soon. Uh, The next story, also in our sandwich meat, is from (laughs) Santosh and about a pediatric version. So uh, take it away.
0: By the time this goes out, Josh, I think everybody it's kind of hearing about this from places like the New York times and the guardian over in the UK. Um, it's kind of a scary thing, especially because we, for the longest time we were saying that this was an adult disease, you know, kids are safe. They're, they're going to be okay. Um, what we have found out is that there is a post COVID or COVID associated inflammatory disease. And, What happens is children, a small subset of children, it's not, this isn't a common thing. This is still very, very rare. We're getting groups of kids who are coming in um, with very ill appearance. Um, they have a shock, uh, but kind of like septic shock, Josh, where they are having trouble keeping their blood pressure in check. Um, and, you know, they need lots of fluids and pressors. And then they have overwhelming inflammation where they have a bad looking rash and they look like, they, like they're like they a red hot cherry tomato. Their eyes get bloodshot and a lot of the times their lips and mouth also turn very red um, because of this ongoing inflammation um, in the body. And what we have found is that in rare cases pediatric patients who are not previously positive for covid and who necessarily they haven't had any symptoms but they become positive with covid or they were recently positive with covid and then they all of a sudden get sick like this um, as early as you know the 27th of april when we first started hearing about these cases from the united kingdom we saw that this disease had a lot of features in common with something called kawasaki disease kawasaki disease is a inflammatory vasculitis where blood vessels get inflamed we know that there's sometimes some association with respiratory viruses but we don't find a trigger in fact the vast vast number of times that we see kawasaki disease we do not find an infectious trigger What ends up happening is because these children who are coming in in shock also have fevers along with a rash and red eyes and red mouth and lips, um, they were called as, you know, Kawasaki COVID disease. As someone who works with researchers who actually look at this syndrome, and this Kawasaki disease that we've known about for a really long time, 1940s, okay? The way that these children are acting, coming in very, very ill and crashing like this, despite the similarities with Kawasaki disease, it's not Kawasaki disease. It looks a lot more like toxic shock and it looks like there's something about coronavirus specifically that sets off this inflammatory cascade. However, as much as we're being on guard, okay, and we do want to see sick kids who have fever, especially if they have rashes or if they have, you know, red eyes, red lips, if they're not acutely ill, meaning that they're not crashing, coming into the emergency room, super sick, they don't have this syndrome. And there is a possibility that they have true Kawasaki disease, which has nothing to do with coronavirus. It's just the season where we usually see this other disease called Kawasaki disease. So, yes, Josh, we are seeing a lot of these pediatric patients. I take it back. A lot for us in in infectious diseases. It's still a rare thing. The the deaths are rare. The recovery rate is good. We do know how to approach this disease when we see it. So if you see these types of symptoms, see the patient, Um, have them come in, evaluate them and do your due diligence.
2: So, and we don't really hear a lot about the pediatric things very often as COVID seems to be much more a disease of adults and elderly. So hearing manifestations in kids is very helpful, uh, if not terribly comforting. That brings us to our next. Now we'll start climbing our way out of this darkness.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's, let's get to our delicious, delicious bread.
2: We already talked about dogs being potentially used as one method to screen the public, mm-hmm. and another one, for those of you who like technology, and for those of you who enjoy hearing me panic about the oncoming Skynet apocalypse. But
0: <laughs> our listeners out there, by the way, we love your interaction with us. You're really wonderful. If there's any way you can soothe Dr. Josh's uh, almost certainly irrational fears about artificial intelligence and let him Is know it? that robots are our friends... Um, Well, especially if you guys are experts in this field and you can give him real like data and information that us and robots, even intelligent robots are going to get along. Okay, uh, I'd be appreciated because
2: Connecticut in an attempt to start doing live action Black Mirror episodes for the love of God are releasing pandemic drones into the air that can detect when people on the ground have fevers and are not 6 feet apart from each other <laughs>
0: okay you know what i i'm going to take a little step back even if those drones aren't running on ai if like someone's watching and controlling those drones it's a, it's a little creepy <laughs>
2: The technology was developed by a company called Dragonfly, which has been Uh, around since the 90s and uses the Westport Police Department's existing quadcopter drones with the software. Um, (laughs) They use they use heat vision that looks, I swear to God, like the Terminator vision in practice. Well, no, like the, like the
0: Predator one, the Predator one.
2: Yeah, and they're, it shows, like, people running around in a soccer thing with green circles, and then they get close, and the circles go red, and then there's one that shows when their temperature starts to go up. <laughs> uh, so drones are flying around, and then the police can make announcements out of the drones, like, stay apart. So is- I don't know if they're going to issue tickets, but the drones can detect everything from heart rate to respiratory abnormalities in people on the ground. And this company also pl- also supplies drones for the Australian military with standard 4K cameras and, you know, whatever software they've loaded up. Police have said they'll be using <laughs> at-risk populations and not in private yards. But... But if you watch the promotional video, they're just like, "Hi. Welcome to SkyNet. We're going to watch you all day, every day, forever." Um, uh,
0: this does not help my argument, does it?
2: No. <laughs> no. Now, from a pure technology standpoint, Connecticut currently has identified about 23,000 cases. Of COVID nineteen, with approximately two thousand deaths as of uh, the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Tracker. Right. So the U.S. broadly has you know over a million cases yeah. um, as of as the morning. So the police force believes using the drones will not only keep the public safe, but will allow first responders like police officers and fire department people to stay out of harm's way while uh, answering calls. I don't know how monitor robots are going to keep some of these guys safe aside from they don't have to go break up a fight they can send a drone to do it but well, uh, the idea uh, that <laughs> flying robots are keeping an eye on our temperature and our movements is one that for some people may be really fascinating for me is a little concerning take from it what you will
0: well, <laughs> i'll give this to you josh <laughs> all right a little mini step back just mini step I think that it is good that if you can identify people and give them a heads up that like, hey, something is wrong – You you know, you're not arming these things. You're not putting weapons or anything on them. But you can maybe at least take... It's
2: not that far a step
0: to start arming. It is, it is. Because, I mean, trying to put, like, a gun on the end of these things or a taser is... uh, It's a big step. That that would be weird. So uh, I I will... (laughs) I will say that from the standpoint of protecting... Law enforcement officers, because they don't have to go out and and do something violent in terms of like they don't have to pull out a a weapon in order to protect themselves or something like that. That's a good thing, um, I would argue. Uh, (laughs) The yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: I suppose keeping humans with guns out of neighborhoods instead putting robots. Without guns is better.
0: Yeah. But I'm
2: still not thrilled about the robots.
0: Fine. I'm with you. I I don't love this idea. (laughs) I think that it's going to keep going in this direction (laughs) in terms of...
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, we'll see what kind of things. Like, touchscreens are probably going to be phased back out in favor of human interaction because too many touchscreens are hard to keep clear. So sure. this is part of, we're trying to figure out what the new world is going to look like, whether it's sci-fi anime dystopia with Oregon's drive through strip clubs, sure. or whether it's Philip K. Dick's Minority Report dystopia with drones flying around telling us who can and can't stand close to each other. What I'm saying is, read up on your sci-fi quarantine people, because there's a lot of fascinating ideas and ways they could be used well or terribly.
0: I've got to say right we do have star trek right star trek was the first time all the way back in the 80s that we saw people doing things on what was a tablet essentially an ipad so i know that we get our ideas and stuff from this kind of a thing when we when we look at the sci-fi but i really i want to try to say that there's like good and bad possible projections here for how this could turn out
2: Okay, sure. <laughs> let's let's move on to our last I'm sorry. and happier story. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think we're I, we're climbing out. We're we're going from
2: like And it involves a llama. A llama named Winter who comes to us <laughs> in spring to help prepare for a better summer.
0: <laughs> I love and this story. And hopefully this
2: story won't fall. So uh work <laughs> A team of researchers from University of Texas Austin as well as National Health and Ghent University in Belgium are developing a potential treatment for COVID 19 by combining two antibody molecules produced by llamas. Now, because llamas have itty bitty tiny fuzzy antibodies, uh well not the fuzzy part, but because llama <laughs> antibodies are actually smaller than Human antibodies, this may work a little bit better and allow the treatment to be administered via inhalation. So, directly at the site of infection. You may have already heard the words llama and coronavirus on the news talking about a cure. And I want to be very clear before we even get into this it is not a cure. They're not pretending it's a cure. It is meant to be a treatment for active disease.
0: Yeah, I, I want to make one, uh, really cool technical point for those biochemistry folks and microbiology people and immunology people who are listening. Camelid antibodies. So those organisms that belong to the camel-ish family. So these are called camelids and the, the alpacas and the llamas are part of the camelid family. Humans, and a lot of other animals actually, are, our antibodies look like a big Y shape, right? One problem with that is that they are big and bulky, but they also means that they're a little bit more specific. To, they have a section that can kind of get in a way, it's the stem part of the Y. Uh, the camelid antibodies don't have that. They're literally missing a piece of antibodies that we normally associate with antibodies from other species, including, you know, a ton of mammals. So camelids are a little weird.
2: And they make little antibodies, ones that are about a quarter the size of ours.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and it really, really helps because those antibodies can perform functions when you take them and put them into other tissues or other organisms outside of the, the camelids themselves, in, in this case, outside of the llamas.
2: So they basically identified during the SARS and MERS outbreaks in 2016, this team was investigating whether a vaccine could be designed against SARS classic (laughs) using...
0: (laughs) SARS, yes, the original.
2: (laughs) Using these llama pathogens because their tiny little antibodies can walk up right next to the spike proteins and hug them. And (laughs) then the spike proteins can't connect or can't latch on to the human receptor sites mm-hmm. so by giving a tiny little emotional support llama antibody. llama body <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. i like it i like it keep
2: going. they were able to prevent now these llama bodies could only bind very weakly to the body. SARS to the SARS-CoV-2 or the COVID-19. But by merging the normal human-sized antibody and the smaller alpaca body, they created this treatment that shows really good ability to block the virus's talent to infect cells. So it ties the llama proteins to the coronavirus you that so the coronavirus can no longer enter through cell membranes and doesn't let go. So now this is in preclinical studies. And if everything goes well, it'll be used for clinical treatments on humans. Now, again, let's talk about vaccines and treatments. Vaccines are given to train our immune systems against different viruses, and to confer natural protection one or two months after they've been given, and in anticipation of avoiding an infection treatment, which is what these llama bodies are going to be developed for, are used to directly address an infection instantly. So if it's approved, it can be then given to patients who are already showing symptoms. It will not necessarily stop you from getting coronavirus. It will, however, make sure you recover from it faster.
0: I I really love this. This is a cool like merging technology. It's not something that's brand brand new merging camelid antibodies with non-camelid antibodies to form a hybrid is now kind of a well practiced technique. It's not something that a ton of people know about, but it's really, really cool to see it used in this regard. There are a few other applications here that are absolutely fantastic. One, yes, you can do something called passive vaccination, where if you make a ton of these antibodies, just tons and tons and tons of it, and then administer it to a patient who is actively ill, then you can use the same principle that we would otherwise use with convalescent human serum, where you take someone who has had COVID, you spin out their antibodies, you select the anti-COVID ones, or you just take all of their antibodies and you transfuse it into somebody else. But you avoid, with the new antibody technology, you avoid all the messiness, which can sometimes happen when incompatibility occurs between a host and a donor, because the camelid antibodies don't have that extra piece of the antibody where it can be recognized as another foreign invader or an antigen. So that works really well. Another thing that we can do is as we escalate this, we can actually try to find out which antibodies in COVID infection are more protective and also try to find out in these cases of inflammation, where we have in adults the lung shutting down, or in kids, we have this hyperinflammatory syndrome. If we find any of these antibodies and the generation of these antibodies are actually detrimental. Uh, to immunity, and they actually kind of stoke the flames of destruction rather than helping the host out in terms of clearing the infection. And this is a phenomenon called immunopathology, where our own immune system kind of betrays us, so to speak has this wonderful application where we can directly use this for treatment, where we can engineer this for active vaccination, you know, finding what antigen we can inject into someone to produce protection. And we can also learn more and more about the immune and inflammatory pathways that make this disease so crazy and so variable from host to host. I'm super excited about it. I'm really, really glad that this group came out with this particular technology and applied it in this manner. I I, I see a really, really bright horizon. And the really wonderful thing about this, Josh, is how... Quickly, I guess, researchers have come together and have utilized resources from all over the planet and are talking to each other and communicating in order to roll out these clinical trials and preclinical trials and cures as quickly and as safely as we can. That's just awesome. This is humanity coming together.
2: So... You pack the mask and gloves, Alpaca antibodies. <laughs>
0: ah, I'm not even mad about you about that. I'm just looking at pictures of llamas as I'm talking to you and I'm so happy.
2: <laughs> and I know llamas and alpacas are two different species, but I haven't been able to go to the zoo for a while, so my animal facts are running thin. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, stay safe, (laughs) and let's look forward to the days when we can once again have happy travels.